We're going to be looking in John chapter 3 in a moment, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. A phobia is considered an abnormal or a, a pathologic fear of something. Ophidiophobia. Any guesses? Ophidiophobia. Fear of snakes. It's a pathologic, abnormal fear of snakes. Ophidiophobia. I hate snakes. <laughs> I hate them. Um, I understand like, in the food chain that they serve a purpose, but I hate them. Um, I would say I don't have a phidiophobia. I don't have an abnormal fear of snakes. I have a very normal, healthy fear of snakes. Okay? Um, they are creatures that move along the ground without feet or legs. They smell things with their tongue. They dislocate their jaws to swallow their prey whole. Right? These are not normal creatures. In God's creation, he has made lots of fantastic, marvelous, and terrifying beasts. But when I, when I go out to my, my compost pile and uncover it to turn it over, I have never seen a great white shark come out. I have seen a snake. When I go into my shed and get my tractor out, never seen a grizzly bear there. Uh, but there's been a snake, right? When I go out to my chicken coop to collect eggs to feed my family with, never seen a barracuda, but there's been a snake. I hate snakes. I do not have peace with snakes. There is no harmony between us. Even if they are not on my property, even if they're out in the back field, I'm at war with snakes. The... Eastern diamondback rattlesnake is the most venomous snake in North America. So what can happen if you're bit by one of these snakes or uh, several others with potent venom? There's a, a series of reactions that happens in our body. So because of increased vascular permeability, you end up swelling, not just at the bite site itself, but um, throughout your body. You have swelling. You have a, a coagulopathy, so your blood doesn't clot. You have bleeding, profuse bleeding. Um, you'll start to have muscle breakdown and acidosis in your bloodstream. Your neurons stop working effectively, so you'll, at best, you'll just have weakness, but at worst, you develop paralysis. This then goes on to renal failure and respiratory failure and death a lot of times. I hate snakes. Interestingly, in Ireland... There are no snakes. Did you know that? Yes, that's what the internet tells me. I've never been there to verify. But apparently Ireland has no snakes, no natural snake species there. So I suppose I could move to Ireland. <laughs> but the fact would remain I still would not be at peace with snakes, even if I'm far removed from them. Last week... Pastor John uh, finished our, our sermon series on the norm, the ideal, and uh, we looked at Ephesians uh, chapter 6. And there was a phrase in there that really uh, stuck with me um, as I was preparing this sermon. It talked about the gospel of peace, right? that we, we need to have these shoes of the gospel of peace. 
And I want to explore that a little bit today. We're going to use John chapter 3 to do that. Um, This gospel of peace. You know, the word gospel um, within Christian circles, it's it's kind of like Christianese language. Um, If you're outside the church, it's probably not a normal word you would use. Gospel just meaning good news, euangelion. Um, And it can be used for a a lot of different things. Um, But traditionally, we think of the gospel as one of two things. One, it's a book of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, those are the gospels. Um, Or the other way we think of it as this message that Jesus died to save me from my sins. And I'm not saying that either one of those are wrong or not. I mean, they are the gospel, but... It's not the entirety of the gospel. It's not the, the gospel of peace um, that we truly see in the scriptures. So let's look at John chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. Now, undoubtedly, this is going to be a familiar passage to many of us, um, but I do want to point out a few things in here that I think are, are meaningful and useful for today. So John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I'll stop there for now. So we have this individual named Nicodemus. We're told that he is a Pharisee. The Pharisees, a a sect of uh, the religious order who were incredibly devout. Um, They followed the laws and customs to each individual letter. And they were considered righteous. They were thought to be closest to God amongst the people of Israel. Jesus calls Nicodemus a teacher of Israel, a leader of Israel. I want us to think about the name Israel for a moment. So the name Israel 
It's first introduced to us in Genesis 32. You probably remember this story. So Jacob is coming back. He's been with Laban, um, and he's, um, he's been married to Leah and Rachel and had children, and he's coming back to his land. And on the way back, he encounters the Lord. Right? He had, there's this man that wrestles with him all night long. And then at the end, Jacob asks for a blessing, and, and what he's given is a new name. He's told, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have wrestled with God. You have striven with God. You have struggled with God. And that is how he is known afterward. And not just him, but the entire people are known as the people who struggle and wrestle with God. You can read through the Old Testament and see this time and time again. They are constantly wrestling with God. And Nicodemus here is called one of their leaders, a lead wrestler with God. The Pharisees believed that their uh, good deeds and their devotion to the law would save them. And Jesus is trying to show Nicodemus that he is mistaken. Nicodemus tells Jesus that that he can see. He can see through the works of Christ that, well, Jesus must be from God. But Jesus in turn says, you can't see. You can't see unless you're born of the Spirit. Nicodemus is confused and asks if he must somehow enter into his mother's womb again. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't get it. You don't want to enter your mother's womb. You want to enter the kingdom of God. And that's only by God's Spirit. Nicodemus is a lead wrestler with God. He is wrestling against God even though he thinks he is at peace with God. He thinks he can see. But Jesus says, you are blind. You know, Jesus doesn't say it here, but he very well could have said, it would be easier for you to re-enter your mother's womb than for your acts of righteousness to get you to heaven. He doesn't say it, but he could have. But what he does say is very telling. He refers to this episode that happened in Israel's past, and we're going to look at it in Numbers 21. That as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So undoubtedly, Nicodemus was very familiar with this passage and didn't need a refresher, but we might. So we're going to take a look at it. So this is Numbers 21, uh, verses 4 through 9. And if you've been studying through Numbers, by this point, you've seen how Israel has continued to struggle with God. You've seen how they do not have peace with God. Right? They, have, they are complaining. They're through the wilderness. They're, they just repeatedly show that they don't trust the Lord. And we come to this point, Numbers 21. From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no, want and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. 
Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So this is the passage that Jesus has referenced. It seems to be a peculiar passage. It was a peculiar moment in the life of Israel. They've complained many times before this, but there was something different about this episode. They're complaining against the Lord's provision. They say there's no food or water. Not true. The Lord has been miraculously providing for them day after day. Forty years they have been receiving bread from heaven. It's not good enough for them. They complain. They're striving. They're struggling against God because they're Israel. And so what God does, he manifests something to them in a physical form that is already true about them in their hearts. Right? They already have the venom of the serpent in their veins. But now they see it. And now they feel it when they're bitten. It's interesting. Their request is just to remove the serpents. God's answer is to give them life. And this is what Jesus is referring to when he's speaking with Nicodemus. Let's pick it back up in in John 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John 3.16, right? Everyone knows John 3.16. It's the most famous verse in the entire scripture. I mean, even people outside the church have some familiarity with John 3.16, right? I don't know how many people know John 14 and 15, though, that that is actually the context that Jesus says this famous verse. And he's talking about the Israelites being bitten by fiery snakes in the midst of their disobedience. And it's in that context that God sends a, 
a plan of salvation. And past that, John 17, 18, we hear condemnation. We don't like thinking about condemnation. I mean, even, even people inside the church, this is not a comfortable subject to talk about. We don't even want to think about it. But to double down on it, if you skip down to the end of the chapter in verse 36, John says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Condemnation and wrath. But this is the reality, right? We read in Exodus 34 earlier today. God's very character and nature. He is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Right? He keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And we love that, and we want to stop there. We don't want to continue with the rest of the verse because it makes us feel awkward, uncomfortable. But the verse continues. The Lord continues in his revelation of himself to Moses and to the people because that's not the end of who God is. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. September 7th, 1987, something happened in human history that had never happened before. There is a, uh, a type of congenital birth anomaly that can occur pretty rarely um, with twins. Um, sometimes they can be conjoined. So they're born, but they're not fully separated. That During the embryonic development, they didn't fully divide into two separate People, they're, they're conjoined. And there's one particular type of conjoined tw- twins called craniosynostosis, where the twins are fused in their skull. Like their heads are connected. And September 7th, 1987, Dr. Ben Carson successfully separated two conjoined twins that had craniosynostosis. It had never successfully been done before. It had been tried dozens of times, but every time before, one or both of the twins died. Dr. Carson was the first to be able to do this successfully, that both twins lived. And part of the reason that it was so difficult um, is that in the development of these children, their blood vessels had fused together. Their neurons overlapped and intertwined. Even the brain tissue itself was shared between the two so that it was perilous to try to separate them. I think this is what we're seeing in Exodus 34. You have the love and compassion of God and you have the wrath and justice of God and they are fused together. This is who God is. And Dr. Carson or any surgeon in the world can ever separate them. And it does make us feel uncomfortable. 
I think we're perfectly comfortable with God's love and compassion, right? That's not the hard part. The hard part is his wrath and justice. My thought is that we are uncomfortable with the idea of God having wrath because we are such poor examples of wrath in our own lives, right? We have seen wrath displayed wickedly. We've seen the overbearing parent who lashes out at their child. We've seen the husband who beats his wife. We've seen police brutality. We see these acts of wrath in our culture and maybe in the mirror, and we think, how can God be like that? Well, he's not. God's wrath is not like that. God's wrath is good. God's wrath is joined with his love, and they can't be separated. God's wrath is just and perfect every time. Revelation 16, um, verses 4 through 7, uh, this is when the bowls of wrath are being poured out on the earth. Says the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Nobody can ever rightly bring an accusation to the Lord that his wrath is unjust. We cannot ever say to him what we can often say to one another, that his wrath is over the top. God has never gone too far in his wrath, even though we are, we do, right? Oftentimes in our wrath, we act with wickedness, but in God's wrath, he acts with righteousness, so I think that's why it is difficult for us to accept the concept of God having wrath. It's because we've seen it displayed so poorly in our own lives. So let us try, let us work to reframe our understanding of God's wrath because it's connected to his love. You cannot have one without the other. In Ezekiel 18, the Lord speaks through the prophet and says, Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. God's wrath is not about being vindictive or cruel. He doesn't have some glee or pleasure in the death of the wicked. No. He desires for the wicked to turn and be healed. His love is right there with his wrath. And it is good. 
we see from Genesis 3 up to John 3, we see Israel. We see a people struggling against God. We see acts of God's love and wrath. We do not see peace. Hebrews 10.4 says that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away our sins. Right? All the sacrificial system that was instituted in the Old Covenant does not cleanse us of our sins. It does not satisfy God's wrath. God's wrath remains. The blood of those animals can never take away sin, can never satisfy God's wrath, and neither can yours. Our blood is insufficient to satisfy the wrath of God. There is only one way that God's wrath can be satisfied. And that is by God himself. Jesus, who was the embodiment of God, Yahweh in the flesh, the same one who appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai, the one who is slow to anger, he is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and who also will by no means clear the guilty. This is Jesus. This is Yeshua, Yahweh who saves, God in the flesh. And what he has done is he became the serpent on our behalf. He went to the cross. And all of our sin and our shame was placed on him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake, he made him who knew to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus, who had no sin, became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became that serpent in the wilderness for us. And he is the one that we must look to to live. Because the reality is, we have all been bitten by the serpent. We all have that venom coursing through our veins and we have black hearts. And what's really hard to do when you have that venom coursing through your veins and and your muscles are breaking down and you have acid building up and your legs are going numb and you have paralysis, it's really hard to turn, to seek a different way because everything in us screams out, cries out, just roll over and die. But Jesus says, I'm here. Just look to me, and you will have life everlasting. The Lord did not take away the serpents. They were there, and they are here. But Jesus is as well. The one who was struck for us crushed the serpent's head on our behalf. And if we fix our eyes on Jesus... We will be healed. My caution, though, my caution is to those of us who say, yeah, I prayed that prayer 20 years ago at youth camp. I'm good. 
Or for those of us who can tout our perfect attendance in Sunday school or whose bank account shows that we've been giving regularly to the tithe, and we think that some of these acts of righteousness can save us. I think Jesus would have something to say about that. Because what he is asking of us is to fix our eyes on him continually, to kneel to him forever, to give him our everything. Our acts of righteousness are meaningless. That is not the antidote to the venom that is coursing through us. Only Christ can save us. But for those of us who do, for those of us who have looked to Christ, we have peace with God. We are no longer Israel. We are no longer the people struggling and striving against him. We have peace with God. And the combination of God's love and God's wrath upon us is not a burden. It is a joy and a blessing. For those who are in Christ, God's wrath purifies the venom that might still be in us. This process of sanctification where the Lord is bringing us to be a new man and a new woman in Christ. It might be challenging at times. The fire may burn, but we come out better in the end. But for those who are not in Christ, who are not looking to him for salvation, God's love and God's wrath are a fearful thing. And that's how Jesus leaves it with Nicodemus. We don't know exactly what happens in Nicodemus' life at that point, but we do see later on that he seems to have turned to Christ. He seems to be a follower of him. And my hope is that that would be true for all of us as well. Life in Christ is not a moment. It is forever. And so is that peace that we can have with God. It's that peace, that good news, that gospel of peace that allows us to stand and to stand firm, to stand against anything that the devil would throw at us. To stand, even when all of our culture is being washed away, we can stand because we have peace with God. We do not struggle with him anymore. Our light and momentary afflictions are nothing compared with the weight of glory. So I pray that as we go from here that you would stand. You would stand firm in that peace that God is offering you. Pray with me. Lord, we are so grateful that you have offered us a way of salvation. And Lord, I admit at times, I want you to just take the snakes away. Just get rid of them. Because I think that would be easier. I think that would be better. That's because sometimes I am still blind and I need to see with pure eyes that you offer through your spirit. Lord, help us to remember that 
as we fix our eyes on Jesus, that the serpent has no power over us because you have crushed his head. Lord, I pray that you give us the courage to stand strong in our day. Even if the world seems chaotic, even if it appears that there is war all around us, help us to remember that we have peace with you because of Christ's atoning work on the cross. And that perfect demonstration of love and wrath that we can be saved. Go with us, Lord, I pray. Amen.